real tough situations. And when he felt the absence of God's presence, um, he often reminded himself, like in the place of prayer and worship, about his history. So I guess what I'm trying to say is David often, when feeling defeated and deflated and overcome and not feeling God's presence, would go back to his history in God, where God did prevail, where God did bring victory. And so one scripture I want to bring in play here is Psalms 78, uh, uh, 3 and 4. Psalm 78, verse 3 and 4. It says, Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children, but tell them to coming generations. The glorious deeds of the Lord in his might and the wonders that he has done. There's value, guys, in passing our history, passing our stories along to future generations. Uh, It inspires us. And when there's nothing else to really pull on in the current season, we can look back to a history of God's faithfulness. And ultimately, that's our desire today, is to recount the past, look briefly at the present, and hopefully see the future. Um, And so we're going to have Bethany kind of lead us off because she'll probably give me credit uh, a little bit, but it's, she was really instrumental in laying the foundation of both ministries, J-Hop and Hilltop. A lot of uh, the foundational work that was done to get us here where we are today was done with her and a small band of young adults who marvel right now at what God is doing compared to when they were here and laboring on the onset of the start of J-Hop. So Bethany's going to uh, give us a little bit of that history of like uh, the storyline uh, of how God kind of birthed and um, created or uh, laid a foundation under uh, the ministry of J-Hop. Let's just see a show of hands. How many of you that are here today have heard, because if you've been here over the years, usually the beginning of every year, we go through our prophetic history. How many of you have heard the prophetic history of J-Hop? A good number, but a good number have not. Raise your hand if you have not. That's a good, that's a lot of people. Um, So I'm just going to say for us, in some ways it is the storyline of how God established us, but I can honestly say for the people that are here and laboring with us and have like really committed their life and feel long-term called to Boston, it really is kind of understanding the greater perspective and kind of the history of how God established us, that in hearing that, that it caused their heart to come alive and really find themselves saying, okay, this is, this is the story of my life. This is what I'm called to. And so I just want to encourage you, for, for those of you that may be new here, and this is new to you, that this ultimately the question becomes two things for you in hearing the storyline is either you're called into this specific one to partner and it's okay if you're not but to encourage you that there is a a story God is writing through your life and that your name can be found on the pages of history that there is something significant and really this is what the story of who we are and how we were established is just simple obedience it's not anything grand there's not any but it's it's obedience in responding to the voice of God and all of us can do that isn't that encouraging (laughs) you don't have to have a specific skill set you don't have to have a specific amount of resources. It's just responding to God. Um, So for us, um, 
really, as Hilltop Church, we really were born out of a prayer meeting, in essence. And I had the privilege of having a wonderful, wonderful high school education. I went to a private school. Um, We did actually a lot of college-level courses. We were actually studying, like, U.S. history, world history, but humanities was huge. And so we actually got to develop our own courses and then, like, teach them to underclassmen and things like that. So for me, I actually spent time studying revival history. I actually got to, in high school, like have courses in revival history. And um, my graduation present from the headmaster of my school was a subscription to Christian History Magazine. And, you know, just a, a wonderful, wonderful high school experience. And to be honest with you, the reason that I chose some of those things and delved into those things in high school was that as I began to study the New England history, and specifically, has anybody ever read through the Model for Christian Charity by John Winthrop? You should read it. You should really pick up, you can just Google it online. It's called A Model for Christian Charity. Um, And Governor Winthrop was the first governor. He was aboard the Arabella, and basically as he was writing The Model for Christian Charity, he was laying out the vision that God gave him as far as establishing these communities and these these people. I'm going to read to you just a little bit of it. Um, It says, now the only way to avoid this shipwreck, this is kind of midway I'm going to pick up here. Now the only way to avoid this shipwreck and to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. For this end, we must knit together in this work as one man. I mean, that's just one (laughs) sentence that he's basically saying, we're looking to Micah, that we are going to love mercy. We're going to walk humbly. We're going to walk justly. And even this understanding of unity, we're going to work together as one man. It's a long document, but he actually kind of closes... um, For we must consider that we shall be a city set upon a hill and a light to all peoples, that the eyes of all nations are upon us. So that if we are to deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall become a story and a byword amongst the nations of the world. And he he goes on further to kind of um, reiterate the, the covenant out of Deuteronomy 30. I mean, it's all an issue of covenant of saying God has sent us to do a work. And I'm just going to say, I am not saying that our founding fathers did it perfectly. I'm not saying that they did it all right. There is humanity, there is flesh, there is failure mixed in there, and you can see that. But it's undeniable when you study the history of the U.S., or and for some of you even, you should just walk even Harvard, the founding of Harvard. There's things written in stone all throughout these New England colonies, and it's written in stone because they were the covenants that they made with God. And so for me in high school, as I studied the New England history specifically, but also our revival history, It became so clear to me as you're reading these pages going, these men had dreams. They had dreams in their heart. And for me, the one thing as a high school student is I began thinking, okay, God, you put a dream in their heart and it's a, a desire that you have. And I can remember being in ninth grade saying, I want to see those dreams happen. And honestly, we don't have time to go through all of it today, but if you study the one theme that you're going to find throughout all of these things, even if you go through um, at, the, at the entry gate to Harvard is actually the covenant that they made and that they wanted to raise up a literate priesthood, that they actually wanted to raise up people that could preach the gospel and articulate the word of God. And so when you study these things in history, you begin to realize is there, there was a dream that God placed in men and women's heart. And that 
with our failure and with the places that we've gone astray, it doesn't mean that God's dream has ended. It means that it simply has not been fulfilled. And so what we have to begin to say is if God has a dream, he still desires for it to be fulfilled in our generation. And so I began, you know, at in high school, just basically saying, God, I want to see your dreams for New England to come to pass. And when you look at New England history, really what it comes down to is a vision for the gospel to be preached to the ends of the earth. And what's extraordinary is if you look now, I mean, this was years ago. How many of you guys have ever gone to Plymouth Plantation? Take a trip there. When you get a glimpse of like the people that were pioneering the new world, I mean, Three quarters of them died off the first winter. I mean, there was hardship, there was difficulty, there was disease, there was starvation, there was all of these things. But in all of it, they persevered because they had a vision of what God wanted to do from this place. And so it's interesting because now here we have how many hundreds of college campuses and the nations of the world are amassing themselves here. And so you can see years later, it truly is a place of influence where the nations of the earth can be touched very easily. So for me, that was kind of like my high school years. And this is the only reason I'm saying, even going all the way back to that, is you really should journal and write down and pay attention to the things that you have passion over. Uh, there's honestly things that are transpiring and not even necessarily public right now, but things that Daryl and I are praying about and planning towards and things like that, that are things that even at the founding of the House of Prayer, I thought, God, how are you going to do that? And how do these pieces come together? And now we're beginning to see it and I'm going, oh my goodness, 10 years later or 15 years later or 20 years later, seeing pieces come together. And so stay consistent and stay steadfast. And so for me, that that was really, I'll be honest with you, you, you wonder where Hilltop Church comes from? It comes from Matthew 5. It was the declaration over Boston, you will be a city set upon a hilltop. You are a light to all nations. And it's believing that once again, that God does want to fulfill that from this place. And so that was even the naming of our church was really out of that vision. And so for me in my high school years, um, that was kind of the dream that I began having. And I, I'm going to be really honest, I gave my high school years, and then my early 20s to prayer and fasting. Actually, somebody from our congregation messaged me this earlier this, this week and was asking me about hobbies and as far as that season of my life and things like that. And I did, I said, I'm like, I am so sorry to say, I didn't have hobbies. <laughs> did not, I mean, there was nothing, I didn't have passion for anything else other than seeing revival. That was like all I, I mean, Daryl knows, like, and I can remember sitting in my room one night because I was like on a 40-day fast and, you know, withering away to nothing. And I remember just like crying over certain issues in my life of where I just couldn't really find like a, a settledness or go about things a certain way. And I remember saying to the Lord, like, what is wrong with me? Because my heart was so consumed and I wasn't really living a very normal life. And I, I so clearly heard the voice of God say, you're peculiar, that's, and you think of that in, as strange, don't you? You think that's weird. You're odd. When I studied the word peculiar, the word peculiar means strangely devoted. Whoa. Strangely devoted. Come on. We're going to talk about a lot of things today as far as the vision for New England. And there's many of us in this room that have locked on and said, I have vision for revival. 
I have vision for world missions. You know what I want to say to you? It requires a peculiar people. It requires people that are strangely devoted to the cause of Christ in the earth. And I'm going to be honest with you, without us being strangely devoted, we will never see those things come to pass. Because when you study history, when you study revival history, that is the earmark that you find for every single one of these men and women. You look at biblically, you look at historically, you find a mark upon their life where they were consumed with with one singular passion and they allowed it to overtake their lives. See, we're so accustomed to our modern preaching of Christianity of like, don't let it over consume you. Don't be overly zealous. And, you know, somehow that's legalism. But when you look at biblically and historically, it was a strangely devoted people. And so don't despise being strangely devoted. Give yourself and avail yourself. So I spent that season really in prayer and fasting. And the number one thing I began to study even about was the Moravians and in Herrenhut, Germany. And how many of you, you guys should look that up and study that as well, is the Moravians literally had a hundred year prayer meeting. I, I went to Herrenhut the first year that I was establishing J-Hot Boston. Somebody paid my way to go for three weeks to Europe. And I spent time at the Moravian Watchtower. It is nothing glamorous. It is nothing wonderful. It is nothing spectacular. It is, there's a picture of it in J-Hop. It's a white tower. Two by two, every single hour, they would go and they would pray. Two by two, with no music. Two by two. Germany is not warm and tropical year-round. That means in the cold, two by two, they were out at the tower with no heat. That means in the midnight hours, two by two, the consistency and the faithfulness and the steadfastness. And it's marked that out of that 100-year prayer meeting was birthed the greatest missions movement. The fruit of revival even in New England came from Moravian souls that the revivalists of New England were ignited with passion because of their testimony. And so I began studying the Moravians. And around that time, Daryl and I, we were involved with a youth ministry. He was the worship leader, and I was leading prayer for the youth ministry. Um, It was around that time. (laughs) We had fun. Um, It was around that time I was doing a 40-day fast, and my one singular prayer, because obviously praying for the nation is what I was doing and still do, my one singular prayer was, God, raise up a galvanizing voice in America to call a nation back to you. Like that's all I was praying for for 40 days. And it was during that time we met Lou Engel and he started saying he was going to gather people on the Washington Mall. He ended up, Daryl and I ended up mobilizing New Hampshire and some of New England to go to Washington through strange courses of events. We met Lou, he came to New Hampshire. We ended up involved with the call DC. Um, and really from that relationship is kind of where everything else really was born out of. Um, so in 2000, we were involved with the call DC. After the call DC, Lou came and did the call here. Actually, I wish we had more time, but we don't. The call DC in and of itself was supernatural. People at that time, Lou was not very well known. He did not have a large gathering of people. All throughout the nation, just word spread of a solemn assembly for America. 400,000 people gathered. Yeah, it was so bad that, um, that we went to what Lou would call Looney Mountain. For Loon the, Mountain. For the Inside Out Soul Festival, the worship team that I was part of was playing there. And um, they wouldn't even let him on main stage. That's how much he was just not known, you know. And it was really a miracle. I remember walking out, I think, around 5 or 6 in the morning with Lou. Um, 
that morning. And he was astonished by the crowd that had already assembled on the mall. I mean, there was thousands upon thousands of people there. Um, and so, yeah, it was really a miracle, nothing short of it. was of miraculous. Um, so it was after the call DC, then we did the call New England, which was literally 11 days after um, the Twin Towers. It was um, September 22nd. Everyone was warning Lou we should not do a massive solemn assembly in government center um, 11 days after because of terrorists. We did it anyway. There was like 40,000 <laughs> that gathered there. Um, but honestly, that call um, in New England, the main thing that we were praying into was the redigging of the wells of revival, the closing of the door of false ideologies that have come through the universities in the use in, uh, of the Northeast. That's a mouthful for some it's of a tall you. Tall order. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, there, there, and I'll, I'll summarize that statement by saying this: that the nations of the world really are affected by some of the things that are taught in the yeah, classrooms right. here in Boston, yeah, and some of those things are godless and false. Yeah. And they're actually antichrist. So that's a that's a strong statement to say. But so that's what he was <laughs> praying for. And, and another student volunteer missions movement. And the interesting thing was, is my segment during the call in New England, which really has everything to do with what we're really kind of going after and what we've we're seeking the Lord for, is Lou asked me to pray into Jonathan Edwards. Here's another thing you guys should look up and read. Jonathan Edwards wrote um, something called a humble attempt. And in a humble attempt, he basically cast, Jonathan Edwards was um, a, revival, a revivalist here from Northampton. And in this humble attempt, basically what he did is he articulated that what he saw coming was that there would be an extraordinary move of prayer amongst New England that would actually bring the gospel to the nations of the earth in one generation. It would cause the exponential increase of the gospel. And so Jonathan Edwards kind of saw this vision in his spirit. And so what Lou asked during that call was, like for us to pray, but also re-covenant with the Lord that we would see an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. So that was really our role um, in the call at that time. Daryl actually wrote this amazing so song Shh, called... don't say it. Just move on. Oh, no. It's like, it's Listen, people are already making fun of that picture that you posted on Facebook. Oh. <laughs> you like a 10. <laughs> Uh, okay, we won't get into the song. No, don't get into it. But it's, <laughs> it was powerful. Wow. <laughs> we wrote a song called God's Land. Oh so God. good. It, it was a good tune. Um, the name. No, I'm not going to sing it. Um, Lou always asks him to re-record it for him. Every time <laughs> we play for an event that he's speaking, hey, do God's Land. I'm like, no, no, I'm just not going to do that, Lou. Um, but at the time, it was just one of those songs that I think carried us through a season. Uh, specifically with Lou and the call, and it was used, and it was awesome. But we won't get into so any more details. <laughs> so fast forward, we're, you know, we do the call, and um, it, so that was 2001. Shortly after that, um, in 2002, 2003, there was a liberal arts college. At, we live in Haverhill, Massachusetts, and in the next town over in Bradford, Massachusetts, there was a liberal arts college that had closed down, and it was pretty much like abandoned. Um, and during that point in time, me and my mother, for those of you that have met my mom, she's been here to speak, um, and a group of intercessors, basically, were prayer walking the college campus, just praying, because it's in our community, in our town, just really praying for God's purposes for it. Well, I begin having, like, dreams about the college campus, dreams about it being an all-girls school, and I'm like, okay, all-girls school. The more I start, like, dreaming and praying about it and looking up history, I find out 
Adoniram Judson, how many of you guys know a little bit of history? Adoniram Judson was the first missionary that was sent from the U.S. He was sent to Burma, um, Burma from, from actually Bradford is where he was commissioned. He married someone named Anne Hazeltine. We won't go into all of that history today, but the, I'll just summarize to say the more we started researching this college campus is it was the original place where these missionaries, the first board for foreign missions was formed there at the tavern. Um, and the funding for these missionaries was set in place. So they're sent overseas. And so we're kind of locking on going, okay, this is literally the history. Um, Lily actually knows Bradford. Um, she's, she's been there to that campus. Um, this is literally the history for the, the, the missions movement. So we start bringing people. Like we're asking Heidi Baker, we're asking Lou Engel and Bill Johnson, all of these people. We're like, you should buy this campus. Like this campus is, was the history of the missions movement and this well for foreign missions. And basically like it was going to be auctioned off. All of these things were going to happen with this campus. So fast forward a little bit. We're praying over this campus, and while we're praying over the campus, I end up going to Redding, California for something else. And while I'm there, some prophet, like one of, I've, I've told this story, some prophet that's on staff with Bill pulls me out of the crowd, and he, all he says to me is he says, have you ever heard of a place called Bradford College? And I mean, mind you, we're all prayer walking it. And there's intercessors coming in from all over the place. And mind you, there's no J-Hop Boston this time giving me words like there's a connection between Bradford, something with Bradford and Boston and campuses. And, you know, like it, there's this whole thing swirl going on. So this prophet calls me out and says, have you ever heard of a place called Bradford College? And if, obviously at this point, I'm paying attention because I'm like, how does he know Bradford College? And he says to me, he says, you have eyes for the nations of the earth. And he said, that campus will once again be used as the crossroads for revival to the nations of the earth. That was intense. I was like, okay, he's, he, has, he has my attention. I didn't hear it. I heard it a year later when I went back to the recording. He went on to say, he said, as you see awakening on the college campuses of Boston, it'll be the catalyst for the student volunteer missions movement that you've seen in your spirit. So he gives that word. I don't really hear anything about Boston because I'm not tuned into Boston at the time. About a year later, Lou brings us out to D.C. He had established the first Justice House of Prayer in D.C. and basically had contacted us and said, would you be willing to start a house of prayer in Boston? Three times. I'm like, nope, I'm praying for this campus and the next student volunteer missions movement. I have nothing to do with Boston. Three times. I'm like, nope, I'm prayer walking this campus. There's going to be another missions movement out of this campus. <laughs> you know, I'm like so like steadfast on this. You can't get me to deviate from my call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so finally, the third attempt, I just said, I'm going to do a three-day water fast. If God doesn't speak to me, we're shutting the door for good. And Lou just missed it. <laughs> but on my three-day water fast, the Lord specifically tells me, go back to the word from Reading. Because I knew that that word from Reading was very key for my life and as far as everything I felt called to. I go back to the word from Reading, and it's the first time I hear, as you see awakening on the college campuses of Boston, it'll be the catalyst for the next student volunteer missions movement. And all of a sudden I go, oh, Boston. Okay, maybe Lou is onto something here. <laughs> so I call him. I just say, I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know how it all work out, but it's God. So I'm on board. And if you guys know Lou, Daryl and I were there in December saying, yeah. We weren't married. We actually probably weren't even dating because we were so on and off. Um, but we said yes. 
And he literally, by January, was like, March 1st, we're calling a fast. And I was like, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't have a venue. I don't have a... So he literally brought his team of 70 from D.C. He was like, get a place for them to sleep. We're doing 24-7 worship and prayer. You know, and actually, Daryl and I, I think at that point, we were on the outs by January. We weren't talking anymore. And he was like, and I won't do it without Daryl. And I'm like, um, we're kind of not. He's like, then it's a no-go. Daryl or nothing. I'm like, <laughs> So Daryl and I were kind of, <laughs> I won't go without him. <laughs> so long story short, if you know the landscape here in Cambridge, I literally, I had never been to Cambridge. Never. Never been to Harvard. Nothing. And I'm driving up Soro Drive. I get off on this exit, actually, to go into Central Square. I drive by the First Baptist Church, and I'm like, that's, I saw the red line signs. You know, I'm like, I have some amount of common sense. I'm like, that's a good location. <laughs> I'm like, okay, it looks pretty central. I think Harvard's that way. I think, you know, I was kind of, so I actually just asked the Lord. I was like, if I could have any place, I hadn't seen any other place yet. That was the first place I saw. But if I could have any place, I want that one. And um, drove around the city, wrote down the names of places. I called every church. I called every school. I called everything imaginable in the city, and pretty much everybody laughed at me. They were like, do you know what you're asking for in the city of Cambridge? You want to sleep how many people? And even to this day, I think if we even thought about doing it, we would laugh. We'd be like, no. Nah. I, I did laugh a couple times. <laughs> so long story short, it was like a week before March 1st, and there were students that were going to be flying in from all over the U.S. for 40 days. We're calling people to a 40-day, day and night, 24-7, worship of prayer in Cambridge to contend for revival. And I'm like, I got no venue. <laughs> so I kept calling Lou and saying, when, when do we call this off? <laughs> I'm like, how close do we get to the day? Because people would email and be like, what's the address? I don't know. I don't have an address. I mean, it was so insane. Finally, I was at some pastor's prayer meeting here. It was actually in Roxbury. Some guy stands up and he's like, hey, I'm going to give the first $1,000. Let's put some money behind this. And and they went on behalf of me to the pastor that was pastoring that church at the time, and they opened the doors. We slept our girls downstairs in the function room. We slept Blue Lagoon. Our Blue Lagoon. <laughs> we slept the boys upstairs, and that place rumbled 24-7 sure with did. worship and prayer. Sure it was insane. It was absolutely insane. It was a disaster. And every single night, so it would be all of our teams sustaining 24-7, and every night kind of the community would come in and kind of join this corporate gathering. And every night, Lou would announce, we're starting a house of prayer. This is the launch of the house of prayer. And I remember, because we were so busy with the 40 days, I kept thinking, what, who, how do you start a house of prayer? Like, Because they were all leaving. They, April 9th, they left. Like, I kissed them all, I hugged them all, and then I was left. <laughs> no money, no location. So honestly, they all leave. And he's now I'm getting emails from people, where's the house of prayer? Where do we come for prayer? I'm like, oh, my head. <laughs> I don't have a clue. So there was th three people that basically came throughout those 40 days that said, I'll stay with you and I'll help you. And I'm like, you're in for like a ride, right? Because I don't know what's going on. We slept in MIT dorms. We prayer walked Harvard three times a day. I mean, the whole thing is like absolutely insane. Uh, prayer walk three times a day. And during that time, I ended up renting a house for 39, mind you, I have no income. No income. The ministry has no income. Nothing. I have three young adults that have no income. They're missionaries. I have to figure out a way to feed them every day. And I rent a house for 3900 I can't even believe the woman rented it to me, and I'm not sure why she did, <laughs> because I had no provable income. 
So we rent the house and we live there for a year. And she literally had said to me on the front end, you can rent it for a year. After a year, um, my family is moving into it, basically. No lie. Every single month, money would come. Like a 5,000 check from here, a 5,000 check from here. Like money would come in. It would be just enough to pay our rent. I literally was getting food from like food pantries for my team and feeding them expired oatmeal for a year. We did night watch constantly. Go ahead. What do no, you? No, no, this is great. <laughs> I I'm, mean, it, I'm getting touched right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it was it was disastrous and glorious all at the same time. Um, and you know, just to encourage you, like the way that the Lord leads you in that season, nothing about that felt divine. I can remember walking the streets of Cambridge and leaving the house so my team wouldn't hear me crying. But I can remember calling Lou, like, just cry, and him crying, and being like, I can't believe I left you there. <laughs> like, because he actually said, he was like, Boston was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and um, just how difficult it was. And I'll be honest with you, it was so hard that first year. I just kept saying to the Lord, because our bank account would level out, nothing left in it for the next month. And then just have to trust that the following month that things were going to... But during that season, I can remember saying to the Lord, the only thing I know is that you've called me to pray for this city. I I know the promises, which I just gave you guys from the time I was a teenager. I know those things, but how that works out in paying $3,900 for a house and having to lead a team and all... like. I don't know about all of that. I just know what you've called me to labor for. So during that season, I basically said to the Lord, I, I was like, I am just going to rent a one-bedroom apartment. I'm going to shut myself in it, and I'm going to pray for the city. I can't do the rest of this. This is insane. Um, that was kind of my commitment before the Lord. And during that time, long story short, the house that we now rent, you guys, th- those of you that know J-Hop, was being gut renovated that whole year. And I kept getting a call from my former realtor saying, I have the perfect place. You can have your prayer room downstairs. You can have staff live upstairs. And I kept saying, I'm not doing that anymore. (laughs) And I kept saying, all I need is one bedroom. All I need is one bedroom. And I just basically was saying to the Lord, I'll commit my life to pray for this city, but I don't know what that looks like or how that translates. And during that time, somebody paid for me to go to Heronhut, Germany. Uh, while I was there, I basically was seeking the Lord. But before I had left for Heron Hut, there was a woman that basically had funded the calls up until that point. And she had called me. And this was like our first conversation, really. She had called me and she said, what's next for J-Hop? And I told her, I said, I'm going to go to a one-bedroom. I'm just going to seek the Lord for the city. That's the one thing I'm sure of. She asked me this question. She said, is there anything, anything you see the fingerprint of God on or that you're questioning? And I said to her, I said, well, there is this house. <laughs> I was like, that these realtors keep calling me about saying it's the perfect fit for us. And I was like, but I just don't think I have the grace or capacity to do that. And she asked me, she said, how much is the rent on it? And I said, 4500 a month. This was years ago. eight years it's ago. no longer $4,500. <laughs> yeah, $4,500 a month. And um, she said, how much do you need to secure it? 14000 She says to me, I will send you the check for the 14000 I will pay your rent the first year. She said, you need to move into that house. We just had like countless things. I know. No that's amazing. <laughs> I'm getting rocked right now. Um, that's the same individual that when, after I had, I mean, we're not going to get to all of it today, but after I had Abram, Daryl was working 80 hours a week. Um, I had a newborn son. We had a ministry here that was being sorely neglected because I just couldn't. 
Um, and I was basically telling the Lord, I'm going to have to pass this on to somebody else because I think my season is over. And it's the same person that stepped forward and offered to finance Daryl so that he could leave his job and be full-time. She just has been such a godsend to our family. Um, but during that time, we ended up moving into the house. And the interesting thing is that when we moved into the house, it was kind of like, okay, what do, we, what do we do? How does this work? During that time, I actually had a dream. And the Lord spoke to me because um, it was kind of our first round of interns that were going to be coming in. And in my dream, this is exactly what my dream was, I had interns that were coming and coming to labor in Boston. And the Lord said to me to bring them to Bradford College, which is kind of where all of this has started, right? With the next student volunteer missions mu- movement. So the Lord told me, bring them to, in my dream, bring them to Bradford College and give them the long-term vision of what this is unto, as far as the gospel being preached to the ends of the earth. So in my dream, I go to Bradford College, which is still vacant, still empty, still abandoned, nothing's happening with it. In my dream, I go to Bradford College, and when I'm there, it's the opening day of, like, basically a Christian college is there. And I can remember in my dream being like, it's a Christian college. And I actually said to the students that were with me that day in the dream, I said, I said, the Lord is preserving this campus until the fullness of time. And, and once again, missionaries will be sent. So it was being preserved. Long story short, during that period of time, I go to Kansas City and I have meetings you know, with Lou and, and Mike and I'm telling them about this campus. And I'm like, I had this dream and I know a Christian college is supposed to take hold of it and preserve it for the purposes of another um, student missions movement. And while we're all talking, one of the people has a word and says, there's going to be somebody that's going to step forward and purchase it. Your dream's going to happen. They, st- they go to auction off these buildings. They were going to be auctioned off one by one. It just Basically, I was watching, it was the day of the auction, and I got a phone call saying that one particular donor actually bought the entire campus and gave it to Zion Bible College um, which is now called North Point College because they send they send church planters into Muslim countries, and yeah, yeah, there's crazy, crazy, <laughs> crazy things all happening there. But just watching that unfold and knowing that even what we're laboring for here and what we're praying for with the college campuses of the Northeast, of watching the hand of God, it's interesting because during that whole season and time. Um, before, I, actually it was before we started the House of Prayer here. It was before we started the House of Prayer um, here in Cambridge. Lou wanted a group of us to move to Pasadena to plant a House of Prayer with him there. And he kind of gathered a group of us together. And while we were all out there, this is actually crazy, while we're all out there, Lou's asking you know, us to move there. And I keep saying to him, I'm like, you don't understand. I'm like, I've locked on you know, praying for this abandoned college campus. I know God's going to bring another missions movement out of it. I can't leave the Northeast. That's where my heart is tied. And he, you know, he blessed me, and he was encouraging. He was like, absolutely, you got to go with that. But the interesting thing was is that as I was there in Pasadena, we went to go on to the campus that he presently has his house of prayer on. We went to move on, go on to the campus, and when we did, there was, actually, you can put it up, Matthew. <laughs> this is crazy, actually. Um, we go to go on to the campus, and this, this painting, actually, um, is on the top of a building. As soon as I see it, I, no lie, I don't just start crying a little. As you can see in the picture, she's <laughs> No, 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 it was not, I can't even describe to you. I don't, and look how young Lou looks. I know, right? Look at how young he is. <laughs> I love that. He's got a nice smile on his face. Bethany looks destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah, this is crazy. As we get onto the, I mean, we're far away. We're still like a whole like distance from it. As I see this man's face, I don't just start crying. I start going into like travail. I'm so sorry if that word offends you and you're freaked out by that, but it's real. <laughs> uh, and so I start like crying and shaking and, and Lou is actually going, he goes, John Armott? He's like, you have history with John Armott? And I'm thinking, honestly, I'm thinking he's saying John Arnott. I don't even see the name. I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, okay, Toronto Airport Vineyard, the revival. I'm like, oh, I'm so confused at this point. And they're asking me, they're like, what's, what's your connection with John Armott? And I'm going, I don't know who he is. You know, and as I'm crying, Therese has her disposable camera. No iPhones back then. <laughs> she has her little disposable camera and Lou goes, this is a window. He's like, it's a window to her future. So he, I know. Lou's like so intuitive to those things. He's like, it's a window. He's like, Tress, take a picture, take a picture. And I'm like, you know, like I'm just freaking out. Lou's like, this is great, you know? Because <laughs> like, I don't know it, but he had major history and connection with John Armand. So long story short, I'm still like, I don't get it. Maybe I should move here. I'm like, who's the guy? I come home. I'm sitting with a really good friend of mine in a coffee shop in Haverhill, and we're studying history of Bradford College, because that's really what I was praying into as far as the missions movement. And it was actually this book right here. She has this book open, which is literally called, the book is called Bradford, a New England school. And it's the history of the school. As she has the book open, she's across the table. I can see on her page the word John R. Mott. And I'm like, John R. Mott, why is he in the Bradford College book? And she's like, John R. Mott? And I'm like, no, John Armand, you know, I'm like, give me that. And I, I read it, and this is what's crazy, is this dude here who I'd never heard of, and when I saw his face, he came. He came to the very grounds because the first missionaries were sent overseas from that place, and he recognized it as the well for foreign missions. He Bradford College. Yes, Bradford he recognized College. it. And there's his, his speech is in here, and basically what he said at that point is he said, our fathers had dreams. They had dreams of a missions movement. They had dreams to see the world evangelize. Their dreams have not yet been fulfilled. And he said, if you want to know what the call is upon your generation, it's to fulfill the dreams of your father. Pick up their dreams and see them fulfilled. See, most of us are kind of sitting around going, what's my calling? What am I supposed to do in life? You know, we're all kind of like, I want some big, like, read history. Honestly, read history and begin to ask God and say, what is the dream of your heart? Because God has a dream, and you actually don't need to make something up. You don't need some profound prophetic encounter. You just simply need to say, this is the desire of God's heart, so I am going to labor to see that fulfilled. So that is actually what John Armott called the students of his days. He didn't even call them to something new. He called them to something old. And you know what it's a picture of? It's a picture of Malachi, where it says that in the last days, the hearts of the fathers will be turned to the children. You know what that means? You start dreaming about your posterity. It isn't so much about you and your glory and your fame and what you get to do. It's about thinking of generations to come and what they'll inherit and what's going to be passed on to them. But also where Malachi said, in the hearts of the children are turned to the fathers. It's that understanding of generations. It's not like we're going to create something new and we're so egotistical and it's all about us. It's going, wait, wait, wait. We have fathers that have gone before us that had dreams and we want to see those fulfilled. It's pretty simple. It becomes about the generation. And it's not so much a, a terminal mindset about me here now, my next 10 years, and how good it feels and what I get to do. 
It's an understanding of those that went before us and those that are coming after us. And living, if you live with that perspective, it will change everything. Uh, It will redefine your life. And that's what John R. Mark called them to. He called them to the evangelization of the world in this generation. What if we begin to take ownership of this generation? Like to see it fulfilled in this generation. And so long story short, I obviously was like, okay, we're on to something here. Like God is connecting pieces. And around that time, the first year we were in that house, I have a good friend. You guys probably will see more of him this year. His name's Brian Kim. He's founded something called Antioch Center for Training and Sending. It's a missions um, church planting movement. Long story short, he wasn't into missions yet. And during that time, he was just beginning to kind of cultivate and, you know, things like that. I can remember as we were having these conversations, I'm like, I'm going to buy him this book called The Evangelization of the World in This Generation. And it's by John Armand. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to order it for him and sew it into his life because I, I could see where he was going and God is using him in profound ways. I wanted to order it. I go on Amazon. I order the book, and I want one for myself, obviously, but being a missionary, I couldn't afford that at that time. And so I specifically said to the Lord, I'm going to sew this into my friend because of his calling, and I could just see where God was going to bring him. But I was like, but if this truly is what you've called us to here in Boston, and this is what you've called us to labor for, would you provide a book for me? That was just my, my prayer before the Lord, thinking maybe two years from now, I'll get a book that day. <laughs> that day, as I ordered my Amazon purchase for my friend, that day I go to the P.O. box for J-Hot Boston, and in it is a package from Lou and Trez. And in, I know, that day, I'm like, God, would you confirm if this is truly like what you've called us to do? And this it has that and, that and that much more involved in this book. It's the students in the modern mission crusade. Um, and in it they wrote... This is the date. Oh, this was actually in 2007. Dear Bethany, I believe you will be used to dig the wells of John R. Mott. May the Ivy League schools be the leaves of healing for the nations. Our love and our prayers are with you always. Lou and Therese. You know what's amazing is that you can ask the Lord to confirm something. And in this specific testimony, there was actually no delay. The day I order a book and ask God to provide one for me, I go and there's a book. That, that God has already, obviously it got sent days before. <laughs> God knew all of those things that would transpire. And so all of that to say is that as we've labored in the house of prayer, I have watched a community of young people that have been consistent, that have been steadfast, that have been faithful. And I want to I say to all of us, pay attention to what you have passion for. You know, Lou always says, pay attention to your tears. Because really, there's a place of calling there. There's a, there's a place of authority. There's an invitation that's there. And for all of us that are here in a part of Hilltop, it really isn't an unto a Sunday morning gathering. It really isn't even unto just singing songs 24 hours a day at 135 Western Af- Avenue. It is unto the preaching of the gospel to the nations of the earth. And begin to ask yourself the question. There might be some of you here that you truly are called to be a church planter or you're called to do missions. 
You might not be called even in those senses of ministry or preaching, but you might have other skill sets. We actually had one person that was a part of, we weren't even Hilltop, we just planted Hilltop two years ago, but he was a part of our community. And I can remember, he was a dentist. And I can remember him saying, I always thought I was going to de- a school for dentistry, basically, because it's, it's a good job and you can get rich. And he said, but after being here and praying with all of you, I've realized God wants to use my skill set for impoverished people. He, and this is what I actually he said to us. He said, my skill set could be actually be used to bring the gospel to nations that would not be open, but I can go and offer services and expertise in those places. That's, that's where you begin to have a vision beyond yourself. That's where you begin to capture the heart of God and that his name would be known in the nations of the earth. Did you have something you wanted to? Yeah. That's good. I know that we're only used to being in church for about 45 minutes, but thank you for bearing with us. Um, I, you know, speaking into this just briefly, and I will be brief, is seeing firsthand just the faith uh, that Bethany and a small group of people had. Um, and, then, and then fast forwarding, seeing where we're at today because of that faith. You know, I just want to encourage us. Um, you know, some of us, we, 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 our faith is small, isn't it? You know, and the first sign of adversity, uh, um, uh, you know, or, you know, or the, the, the first sign of kickback, or we, we, send, we tend to lose it. We tend to lose our way. But I, I just got to witness, I remember laughing about some of these things, uh, particularly about Bradford uh, the, this, the campus in Bradford and some of the things that, um, that the Lord was speaking and doing. And then I read in the newspaper that actually a, a, a Christian school now owned the campus. I, you know, I, I, sometimes I wish that we were as intuitive as Lou because I think often we miss some of these things. Like, and what I see, because I, well, I saw it firsthand and I'm seeing it again, is just the faith and the resolve um, that this group had, and it really is the byproduct of that faith is what we have today. And um, I only look forward to what we'll have in the future because yeah. of that faith. But um, one thing that hopefully we want to inspire you guys with is that we believe God is looking for partners, right? I know for some of us we feel like, you know, God is just sovereign. He'll do things according to his will. He'll do things on his own. But, you know, often we don't see that that's the case in Scripture. God uses mankind that's right. to execute his purposes and his plans. Uh, you know, all the way back from the book of Genesis, we can see that where God said, "Let Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish, the sea, and over the birds, the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, And then in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, uh, Amos says, Indeed, the sovereign Lord never does anything, not just some things, but anything, until he first reveals his plans to his servants, the prophets. You know, uh, in Philippians 2, chapter 5 through 8, Paul even referred to himself as being a partner with God, that he co-labors with Christ. And this narrative has been really hijacked in the church where the attitude is just like, it's up to God. And and of course, listen, God is not bound by, by any means. You know, he can do what he wants, but we see this constant kind of narrative in Scripture that God looks for men. God looks for humanity and he places things in their heart, much of like what we have seen and heard here today. But Philippians 2, chapter 5 through 8, 
Paul says this, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, now this is big picture, think about this, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of what? A servant, a human, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, some of us would just wipe that away and say, well, that was Jesus. Um, But yet we see again that kind of partnership. You know, God could have done, he could have really did anything to reconcile his relationship to, um, with humans, excuse me. But he, he, he reduces or he takes on the form, Paul says, of a man. <laughs> I understand that probably went over a lot of our heads, but I don't have really time to get in more details than that. Um, but then also Paul, again, like I said, considered himself uh, to be a co-laborer with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, the word co-laborers or uh, workers in the Greek uh, means God's workers are God's partners. Actually, in the NLT, the New Living Translation, that's the word. Uh, for we are partners with God. And I think if anything, any fruit could come out of this is we have to understand our role in uh, our partnership with God, considering ourselves as co-laborers. Not just breathing, not just warming a seat, not just coming on Sunday, not just plopping down at prayer, but actually getting involved and being invested. And I just want to invite you guys into the future of what God is going to do through through this ministry, meaning J-Hop and Hilltop. Um, and, and, And ask God, how could I partner with you to see the dream of God fulfilled in a city like Cambridge or Boston. Do you have anything you want to add to that, babe? I just want to encourage everybody, if you're sitting here today and kind of like, well, I don't have any very clear vision. Like there's nothing that I feel. I'm, vision is birthed and born in the place of prayer. Honestly, we're in this 40-day season. I understand not everybody can fast on liquids, but you know what you can do? You can fast media. You can set aside some extra time to basically spend time in the place of prayer. There, you can cut out some of your social life just for 40 days, just 40 days. I know it feels long, but it goes by really fast. I'm going to guarantee if you give yourself to some form of fasting during these 40 days, when you enter the end of it, although you'll get to like eat your chocolate cake or whatever, you will have a place in your heart of going, oh, it went by so fast because there's such a window of encountering the Lord. And so I want to encourage you that part of the reason we even wanted to share this during these 40 days is I'm going to be honest with you. I, when I recount the story of how God has led us, I'm not satisfied with just looking at stories or what God has said. I have a desire to see these things fulfilled, but also to see the story continually be written. And so for all of us, we need to live in a place of not being satisfied with former things, or even for for some of us, don't be satisfied with hearing other people or just locking on to, oh, I'll just join with that, you know, but find the place where your heart comes alive and what God has called you to labor for, because he's called you to labor for something. And I'm going to say first and foremost, it begins in the place of prayer. 
It's in the place of prayer. You're going to find, you might, it might be Israel. You might be sitting in one of the sets and they're praying for Israel and you don't understand it. But for some reason you have like a crazy heart of compassion. You all of a sudden have a desire to go there. It's those things that in the place of prayer that they're cultivated and grown. And and I want to encourage you during these 40 days to lock on and begin to seek God and ask him, what are your dreams? Obviously, he has a lot of them. I mean, it could be in the area of sex trafficking, of, you know, rescuing victims. It could be anything. But ask God, what are your dreams and how do I partner with you? Amen. 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 This is good. Yeah. Um, Thank you for hanging. And again, we don't want to hold you any longer. I see 